will be the concluding sermon of Second Peter, so wrapping it up and uh, moving on to Jude next. Jude is, is tightly connected to Second Peter, and they will go well together. Um, so that that's the plan from here on out. But uh, we'll be in chapter three, verses fourteen through eighteen this morning. Let's pray. Our, uh, our Heavenly Father, we are just in awe that we get to use that name of you at all, and that we get to do so in the name of Jesus, and it's because of him that we have been granted every blessing that we have, and through his uh, divine power we do have everything we need to live life to the fullest measure, godly and holy lives in, in personal knowledge of you, our God and Father. Our blessings overflow. Let us not be neglectful or wasteful of your gifts, we ask, but spur us on. Spur us on this morning by the power of your spirit and your working word to, to live lives that are pleasing before you. In the name of Jesus and on his merits, we boldly ask these things. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second Peter t- uh, 3, 14 through 18. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Seated. So last week we discussed how Peter has been talking about the day of judgment and he, he says, since these things are going to happen, since the worlds around us are going to be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be? How thou shall we then live? What kind of lives should we live? He points us to holiness and to godliness, and he says that we're waiting in in eager anticipation for the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. So though there's judgment and fire and doom on the last day, ultimately we have hope in the last day. This week he continues to kind of show how, how shall we then live in light of judgment? How do our beliefs and our life in Christ, our identity in Christ, how do those things impact our practice? And he concludes the book with uh, some final exhortations. And really these exhortations reflect uh, three major themes that have been throughout the book of Second Peter. The first is the coming of the Lord. The second is the trustworthiness of the scriptures. And the third is the warning to stand firm amidst lawlessness. 
coming of the Lord, the trustworthiness of the scriptures, and warning to stand firm. So these challenges, these exhortations that he gives us in light of these themes are uh, not easy for Christians to do, to follow. These exhortations are challenging. But they're also wonderfully encouraging exhortations because they're exhortations which come uh, to a particular group of people, and namely here in this passage, the beloved. The beloved. We get these exhortations because we are in Christ as the beloved. It is because the work of God in Jesus that we are being exhorted as we are. So he begins in verse 14 and 15. This is regarding the coming of the Lord. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, but at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So there we see again the word beloved. We're charged as the beloved, as people loved by Peter and as beloved in the Lord, this covenant group of people who are loved by God. And he says, since you are waiting for these or these things, since you are waiting for these, so these, what is these uh, looking back to? And of course, he looks back to, in verses 12, 11 through 13, um, the coming of the Lord, the coming of day of judgment. And ultimately, I think he's talking about the hope that we have in the new heavens and the new earth. Since you are waiting for these, And the word waiting here, it reflects this idea of eager expectation, this anticipation. Uh, I have a picture of Cohen. We, we, we told him that his grandma was going to come, and he was sitting out on the porch for quite a while just waiting for her to come, and it was going to be like an hour and a half before she got there, and he was just sitting there looking, waiting. And I think of it like that, when Jesus is going to come back, this eager expectation. We love him. We want him to come back. Since you are waiting for these, and these words, therefore, since, and, and these, they, they hearken back. So there, he's, he's saying this day of judgment and the hope that we have in the coming day is the foundation for what he says next. And what he says next is that we are to be diligent. This is his command to us. This is his exhortation to us. Be diligent to be found by him question is, how will we be found by him on the last day? If he were to come back today, tomorrow, will he find us beating our fellow servants, as the parable account? Will, will he find us uh, lounging on our couches in, in apathy? Will he find us having only buried that which he's given us to, to invest? Or will he find us without a lamp? As the parable in Matthew 25 says, this is a striking story. Matthew 25, 1 through 11, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and all the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps going out. 
But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. We must be diligent. These other five virgins were not diligent to take care, to anticipate the coming of the bridegrooms. It's important to recognize here that the the whole concept of duty, he's talking about duty here, and the, the whole concept of duty is not negated by the ordo salutis. By that I mean... We, we, we know that we're saved first, sanctified later, right? Duty comes later, but that doesn't mean we don't have duty. We are to be dutiful, to be diligent before the Lord. And in fact, the order of salvation gives meaning to duty. This is the difference between works righteousness and living as a new creature. And works righteousness, our works, our duty, brings us closer to God in our own conception But as the new creature, rather, we're changed and we're made more and more into the image of God and we do our duty in light of what He has done in us. He says here that we are to be without spot or blemish and at peace. That's how He wants Jesus to find us. Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. So in English, these three terms kind of get equal bidding, blameless, spotless, and at peace. But really in the Greek, spotless and blameless are adjectives, and peace is the the direct object. So peace gets the primary focus here in the grammar. That's important because he wants wants us, for Jesus to find us at peace. So first, let's look at that, without spot or blemish. How can we be without spot or blemish? How can we as sinners be without spot or blemish? First Peter, we read about Jesus Christ, the Lamb, without spot and blemish. That's a high bar. Jesus Christ is the one without spot and blemish. We can't live up to that. Calvin points out, it may be asked how anyone can be found blameless by Christ when we all labor under so many deficiencies. But Peter here only points out the mark at which the faithful ought to aim, though they cannot reach it, until having put off their flesh, they become wholly united to Christ. So it makes sense, it makes sense to me at least, diligence doesn't equal perfection, because perfection in some senses, you've arrived, you've gotten there, there's no further need to be diligent. You can relax. But for the meantime, we have so many deficiencies, we labor and work to look more and more like Christ. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him, in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteous 
forgiveness has been born of him. So we are to seek to be spotless and blameless, but ultimately he's pointing us to this word peace. We need to be at peace. So what does this word peace mean here? Does it mean the peace that we have between us and God? I don't think it can mean that kind of peace because this is a peace that he urges us to be diligent, to be labored to possess. And we don't labor to possess peace with God. He gives it to us. It's a gift. Certainly we could labor for a peace within the body, between brothers. Ephesians tells us we're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We can strive for that peace, and and we should, because we are all holding to that one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's another kind of peace, and it's a a peace of mind or of soul or of conscience, a confidence before the Lord, that steady confidence amidst the waves. I can't say for sure with certainty which flavor of peace Peter is talking about, perhaps more than one, but I think this is more the type of peace that he's pointing to that best fits the context, this context of, of false teachers coming and trying to rattle our cages, and we stand firm in confidence and peace. They mock us and scoff us and say, where is the promise of his coming? And he says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. We have that easy confidence, knowing that God will come in his time. And it produces a stability in us. That's the kind of peace we're talking about, a peace of stability that we're not shaken amidst all the waves that crash against us. Peace in the prospect of the coming judgment really is an extraordinary thing. We were talking about that today with the fear of the Lord, right? And those end times and the power that the Lord brings at the last day. It's a normal thing to be afraid at that. And yet, he says in this context, be at peace. That peace speaks volumes of our confidence in that day. And that's a major theme throughout that, that confidence that Christ will come again. Confidence in the glory that we will have on that day. So to me, diligence to labor after peace is something kind of like working to to make our calling and election sure. They're kind of the same idea. Labor to more and more every day have a peace of mind. I think of kind of a, an experienced search and rescue team these are diligent people. You know, they're, they're faced with some of the most daunting challenges, and these challenges never really face them. They never waver. If they, if, if they do waver, they will probably end up dead. But there is a cool easiness and an air of confidence in them in the midst of these challenges. And it's because they've been trained and they know who they are and they know what they are to do. They have that kind of peace. This type of peace gives us confidence in the day of judgment, and it also gives us confidence in the face of a scoffing world. We know that Jesus come, will come back. We, we cannot be shaken in that. I think of kind of the, the playground battles, you know, the, the teasing and the picking on that, that kids do. And, and the one child who is 
insecure, who is not at peace, will be totally rattled by that scoffing, right? But the secure child who is confident, who knows who he is, and who knows that the scoffing does not match reality, the scoffing is like water off a duck. It will not shake him. So we labor to have that kind of confidence in the day of the Lord. Where does that confidence come from? The confidence comes from point number two here, the trustworthiness of the scriptures. The trustworthiness of the scriptures. Verse 15, uh, B through and 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So it's kind of clear from reading Paul that there were all often people who would malign his apostleship or abuse his theology and, and accuse him of saying things that he wasn't saying. You can see him throughout his letters kind of saying, well, I'm not saying this, am I, say, am I saying this now? He, he is pretty clear that people like to try to abuse and take advantage of his um, teachings. We think of Romans, you know, he kind of almost preempts the discretion where he says, well, shall we, we send all the more that grace may abound? You can hear those voices around him. He says, may it never be. So it may be here that P- Peter brings up Paul because perhaps the false teachers were abusing Paul in some sense like that, uh, promoting licentiousness based on a false reading of Paul. That may be why Peter brings this up here. But here we get a sense of kind of an inter-apostolic agreement that, that there's one message that the apostles present to to their hearers. He says that that his message is just as Paul's message, who is a beloved brother who's been given wisdom by God in all of his letters and all all these other scriptures. Paul identifies Paul or Peter identifies Paul's letters with scripture. He calls them scripture. Throughout Second Peter, we've seen a centrality of the scriptures in the Christian's confidence. Um, in Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21, we read, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now this is great, because more fully confirmed than what? His own experience. And, and an amazing experience, the transfiguration. Today we like to see people people heighten experience far and away above the word. This is a man who was at the transfiguration and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. The scripture is more confirmed than his own experience of the transfiguration. He goes on, To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit in our passage this morning peter returns to this notion of the scriptures of which he includes paul's letters just as a side if this letter was written to the same 
people as First Peter was. It's written to the people of Asia Minor, of modern-day Turkey, you know, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The, that was the group, which would have included places like Galatia and Ephesians, or Ephesus, and Colossae, and Laodicea, all of which Paul wrote to. Now, we don't have a letter to, to the Laodiceans canonized, except for Colossians, he says, bring this to Laodicea. But nevertheless, Peter here recognizes the need for an ultimate standard of truth outside of himself if he's going to make the kind of confidence claims that he's making. And he admits here, it's funny, he admits there's some things that are difficult, but he maintains that they're knowable. Those who abuse the scriptures are, are not just kind of doing the best they can to get there, but missing the mark. They're intentionally ignorant and intentionally twist the scriptures. He says they twist them, they conform them to their own understanding and their own desires. But the scriptures are the ultimate source of confidence in the face of false teachers. We can, in fact, know them, handle them rightly, rightly divide them, and hold the trustworthy word as taught. Or on the flip side, we can twist, we can malform them, we can conform them to our own desires. And one of those activities leads us to knowledge and life and hope, and the other to destruction. The Bible is 66 books, about 40 authors, composed over the course of about 1,500 years. And there's one message, perfectly unified. And it's interesting, they, they did have personal differences. We read about Peter and Paul. We read about Paul and Barnabas. There's not total like, magical unity within the church, but through the weakness of God's people and God's saints, he's composed this book for us. And there's one theology because the one God of heaven inspired infallible scripture through fallible men. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the question this morning is how do we handle God's word? How do we think of God's word? Is every single word of inspired value to us? Are we grieved when we see it twisted and disregarded? Maybe more to the point, how do we twist it? We all have things that we hold dear that aren't scripture. We have traditions that are unscriptural. We have things that we're invested in. If you take like a business class, you read about all these errors, and one of them is the sunk cost error. Well, I've put so much work into this, I'm going to just keep working at it. We could do that with our theology. Well, I've put a lot of work into figuring this out. And see kind of how I might be wrong, but man, I, I'm going to defend it because I put a lot of work into this. We also have our pet sins, things we want to defend that we'd rather not give up, and we bend the truth. We make scripture to fit our own paradigm, our own program, or our own personal desires. Now, isn't it comforting here to hear, hear Peter? The Apostle Peter say, some things in Paul's letters are difficult to understand. Doesn't, doesn't that give you some comfort? I mean, I, I would like to know, what is the third heaven? What is the baptism for the dead, right, Paul? These are hard to understand. 
Peter humanizes it a little bit for us. We don't have to know everything to have a saving knowledge of Jesus. We don't have to kind of attain to this Gnostic plateau before we can have a good understanding of God. That said, the challenging portions of Scripture um, do not let us off the interpretive hook, so to speak. The Scriptures are, in fact, what Deuteronomy calls the things that are revealed to us and to our children. They are our possession. So to twist them or disregard them in any portion or any doctrine is to disdain God's communication to us. All Scripture is God-breathed, including the comment about the baptism for the dead, and is useful for preaching, correcting, training, and righteousness. <coughs> I'm firmly convinced of that, that all Scripture is useful. I remember when we were going through First Peter, and boy, there's that difficult section about Noah and the flood and, 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 and uh, you know, people... Now I've, spacing on what it's about. <laughs> Difficult section in First Peter, and I didn't know what the value was to this, but when we got there, I think I paused and I, I preached an extra sermon in between and studied it for two weeks, because I was convinced this portion of Scripture has value to us, and when I got done, I realized there's the sense in which this is the height of First Peter, because it points us to our, our death, burial, resurrection, and ascension with Jesus, and man, it's so valuable. So I'm convinced also if we were to study some of these hard things like the baptism of the dead, we might not figure it out, but it will be value to, of value to us. Jesus once told the crowds, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And what, and what did they say? This is a hard saying. And they left. They took off. We are to know God's word and be shaped by it. False teachers shape the word. They mold and massage the word to conform it to themselves. We are to be shaped by the word, molded and, and chiseled by it into the image of Christ. When I was trying to decide if I should go to seminary or not, I went and, and talked with uh, Andrew Zeller, the president, and uh, he was asking me, you know, what do you like about woodworking? You get to kind of create and mold and shape things and, and, and create something that you from your head and your, and your mind and your hands. And I, I like that aspect of it. And he pointed out people need a lot of shaping as well. <coughs> it's an interesting point. You kind of have that image of like a, a stonemason chipping away on a, a block of granite to, to reveal something beautiful within it. And I have to say that I have chiseled on ebony, one of the hardest woods, and people are much harder to chisel than ebony. And I know from experience my own heart of granite is so hard to chisel. So what are those areas of your life where you are trying to twist God's word into your plans? What is that one uncomfortable image that pops into your mind when I just poked your ribs with that question. That that one thing you least want to deal with is probably the area that God's chisel is needed most. And really the beauty of it, that sounds painful and sounds harsh, but when that area is gone and worn away and chiseled off, we will be happier. We will be more and more conformed into the image of Christ than we were before. 
these are important things to ponder because the alternative is being caught up in the, the other side, those gusty winds of false doctrine. The, that changing of the word of God that, that we become so encrusted with, with barnacles and fungus that you can't even identify God's image within it. That's the opposite side. So third, the warning to stand firm amidst lawlessness. Warning to stand firm amidst lawlessness. You therefore, beloved, in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand, taking care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So here Peter draws a, a bold, dark line between believers and unbelievers. He's speaking to us, you beloved, you act differently than those people. Rather than abusing scriptures to point, uh, support your sin, you have a mindset bent on holiness and knowing Christ. And here he says, knowing this beforehand, or or literally, it's just knowing before. It's the same word that he, uh, Paul uses in Romans 8 for foreknowledge. Is foreknowledge. So knowing beforehand. I think the idea here that Peter intends com- to communicate is possessing prior knowledge, uh, particularly of Christ and of the gospel and of the doom and glory to be revealed at, at the judgment. Knowing all that, essentially he's saying, you already know better. As the beloved in Christ, you know better. And because you know better, the charge is here, the, the imperative is take care or be on your guard, be vigilant. It's interesting, he wraps us back around really full circle to diligence. To be diligent. We went fishing on a fishing trip with my mom's side of the family in Minnesota. And we were all kind of in the kitchen doing a fish fry, and my my grandpa saw my brother, and he kind of—I forget what he asked him exactly—but something like, "Do you work out, Brandon?" <laughs> Brandon said, "This doesn't just happen." <laughs> the whole room erupted in, in laughter, and my grandpa was about in tears, laughing so hard. And that's still a joke within our family. This doesn't just happen. A firm stand on Scripture is not going to just happen. It doesn't just happen by accident. It's not our nature to submit and to be bent and shaped and formed and squished by something outside of us. But we very much need to be. And the reason we need to be is is so that, he says, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So notice two things here. It's interesting. We have a knowledge, a foreknowledge of the truth by the word and spirit, and we have a stability, which Peter warns us to lose, not to lose, rather. Knowledge and stability. That's opposite of what he just said in verse 16 of the other side, the lawless people. He says they're ignorant and unstable. And here he says you have a knowledge and you don't want to lose your stability. The letters of the apostles put a lot of emphasis on uh, maturity, steadfastness, and stability. In Colossians 1, Peter says, 
Him, that is Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal. And he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That, that's Peter's or Paul's mission, to present us mature in Christ. Hebrews 5, we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in ignorance, naturally, we are ignorant. We're like sheep. We'll follow the rest of the sheep and we'll follow them right off a cliff. And unfortunately, there are millions of shepherds who will call out to us to say, go this way or go that way. But Jesus says they are thieves. He says to us that we need to know the voice of the shepherd. If we do not follow his voice, we will be led to the slaughter. And we are naturally unstable. Jesus says that the wise man builds his house on the stable rock of his word. This is why we must take care, because there are shifting sands all around us in the world. We must take care. We must be on guard. We must be diligent and watchful, our powers of discernment being trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Rather than, than slip like the lawless do and lose our secure footing, we are charged here to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does this mean, growing in grace? <clears throat> growing in grace is kind of like peace, but isn't grace a gift from God? How do we grow in something like that? Are we in some sense responsible to obtain more grace? Grace is unmerited favor. And of course, some grace, like saving grace, is given all at once without any of our own effort. But other graces are given to us that we should uh, avail ourselves of them. We should take advantage of them. Peter calls us here to grow in the knowledge of his most glorious, this, this most glorious person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a privilege that is to, to get to grow in the knowledge of this person who Peter ascribes all the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That's the person we're supposed to know. That's a privilege that we get to know that person. Growing in the knowledge of Christ involves learning details about him, to be sure, but there is an intimate, personal knowledge which should cause us to burst forth in praise like Peter does here. He, he truly is worthy of all the glory. This world is not too dim, darken his glory and eternity is not too long to exhaust it so knowledge of Christ that does not lead to praise and to thanksgiving is really a superficial knowledge so we need to undertake this charge for what it is it's a charge and a command from a man who is as much our apostle as he was an apostle to the people who he's writing here. And the charge is, 
grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like, to grow in grace and knowledge? What are some practical ways, some ways to practice diligence in guarding ourselves? How do we grow in grace and knowledge? And, of course, I just have to say... We, we look for excitement and thrills, but we just have to point to the ordinary means of grace. That is the way we grow and guard ourselves. The ordinary means of grace of the word of prayer and the sacraments. I was listening to a, a podcast about this subject this week, and this man, one of the men, had a story from a while back, and he said he was trying to, to meet the Lord, essentially, and he went out into the, this cabin, and he went out into nature on this rock, he sat and he prayed and he was seeking this experience with the Lord, but he left his Bible at home and he kind of got done and he said, well, I didn't feel like the Lord met me there. He was seeking that experience outside of the Word. And then they told another story of Jonathan Edwards who went out into this field and he began to ponder the scriptural doctrine of the infinity of God, or, or I forget which doctrine exactly, but he became overwhelmed and began to Weep, and he, he began to just think about the, the, this doctrine of God, and it took him a week. He'd try to interact with people, and he couldn't. He'd just break down crying, and he had to get alone by a week and collect himself because he pondered on God. He wasn't seeking an experience outside of God. He was thinking about truths of God. <clears throat> that is how we know Christ. Henry Skugel says in his great book, the life of God and the soul of men, he says, the serious and frequent consideration of divine truth is the most proper method to beget that lively faith, which is the foundation of religion, the spring and root of divine life. Serious and frequent consideration of God is how we get to know our God. So I want to close here in the spirit of, of unified apostolic testimony and submission to scripture, I think the Apostle John really sums up what um, this sermon and this whole book of Second Peter is about really well in First John uh, 5, at the end of First John 5, 18 through 21. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Take our hymnals again. We'll stand to sing. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim. 165.